Hey everybody, it's Paul from Don't Quit Your Day Job. Thanks for tuning in. Just a heads up before we get into this episode with Ron Young of Little Caesar and the Crusados. Uh, we had some hot mic issues going on throughout the episode, so you'll hear some crackling and some distortion, um, especially as he's uh, telling his very funny stories um, and he gets excited. Um, sorry about that in advance. Hopefully you'll still listen and, and enjoy everything, and thanks as always for your support. Here we go. Don't quit your day job. Thanks for uh, tuning in once again. And I am super happy and excited to introduce uh, a legend. I, I think it wouldn't be too bold to say. Legend in his own mind. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ron Young of uh, Little Caesar and the Crusados. Uh, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, we were introduced, although still never met in person, but we were introduced via um, our mutual friend, Mark Tremalia, who joined yes. Little Caesar a couple of years ago. Um, why don't we just start there just a little bit? And, and can you talk about how you met Mark and what it, what it meant to get him into the band? Yeah, well, we, we've been playing for decades to get uh, a solid, I don't mean musically solid, but just a committed band member in that guitar position we've had so many guys like girl slick and apache was in in the band originally and we've gone through a bunch of guys over the years and before mark there was a guy named alex kane who's played with you know some of the ramones guys and he's played with he's in enough's enough now Oh, okay. And we were just having a trouble holding on to a guitar player because, you know, a lot of these guys need to work all the time. And we just don't work all the time. We go in spurts. So we very amicably parted ways with Alex because he needed to go to more, you know, prolific fields. And um, we just know a lot of mutual friends with Mark. You know, he's been around, you know, he's in Bantano and he plays with a buddy of ours, Paul Ill. And we had mentioned it to Paul, um, and Paul's like, dude, I got like the perfect guy. So we were like, oh, sh you know, we didn't even think about Mark. So we got a hold of him, and we got together, and it was just right from the start. He's just, we all have the same musical influences. He's just such a great, consistent, meticulous, soulful player that he just fell right in. It was like, man, this is great. And he's been with us now for about three years, I think it is. Yeah. So it's just it's great to have him aboard. It's great to have that position filled. Um, it's great to just travel around with him, have him as a friend. It's just it's great. So we'll talk about. Um, I, I'm sure we'll get to some of the ups and downs of of the career of Little Caesar. Um, but of, of course, I have known Mark for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> Of, of course, right. I, I've known Mark for a really long time, and and he still gives me lessons, and that's how this podcast started. You know, he was just uh, telling me go. he was just telling me stories, and I was like, I just have to record this and put it out, and it will be <laughs> it will be amazing. Um, yeah, and that, there's, there's a lot of lot of goofy stories <laughs> over the years, that's for sure. For sure. But as far as Little Caesar goes, like 
Um, I, of course, knew of you guys. I, I knew the, the, that first record, especially like a lot of people um, I'm of a certain age, similar to you. Yes, men, men, men and women of a certain age. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the 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 eight yeah, albums. Notice the white. Notice yes, the white. In same our beard. same yes, for me. Yes, yeah, that same would, for that me. would chronologically denote that. You know, <laughs> yes. um, the the eight album feels like a bit of a a more significant rebound. I guess it just feels the rejuvenation feels sort of different from some of the other peaks and valleys that you've had. Yeah, there, there was some, there was a great energy on the record, um, you know, bringing Mark in and, and it, it was great. And, you know, it's so hard for me to stay, you know, music becomes molecules to guys in bands, you know, <laughs> you know, by the time you've gotten down to mixing down the record, you know, every note, every spacing, every reverb, every, and it's really hard to stand back and, and to actually judge your own music. So you put it out, you hope that it speaks to people. Um, and it, it was a very vibrant record. It's, you know, we, we have so many influences and we, you know, every time we make a record, it's like, okay, what sort of areas do we want to lean towards? And, it's a whole lot of fun to do that, but you know, we've always just basically been a straight ahead blues rhythm and blues based, you know, sort of hard rock and band where a lot of our contemporaries at the time that we emerged on the scene were more pop metal kind of bands right, right. and the production sounds and the approaches to making a record for that time period are a lot more constraining than for a band like us, it's always wanting to have been a band more in the seventies than in the late eighties. Right. So, so you add all that up and it, it, there's some, you know, there's some benefits there and it's going to speak to people differently who listen to all these different things that we put out, but it's really hard for us to judge. <laughs> so. Well, I can say as a fan, as someone who listens to a lot of music, including what the stuff that you guys put out, eight is a, is a really, it's, it's more than just a solid album from what some might term a legacy band. It's a, it's a good album that, that people should listen to, you know, as you just said, it's vibrant and sounds like, it sounds like stuff that, that people want to listen to really. Right. If you put up a picture of a bunch of 26 year olds, you would say, hey, this is pretty cool. Kind of retro, kind of bluesy, kind of, you know, gritty. And then you see our picture and you're like, oh, oh, OK. <laughs> so actually, let's talk about that a little bit. So you had you had your first album produced by Bob Rock, which which we'll certainly talk about. But um, it was a hit. And then you got some pushback and actually what i read was uh the band is not photogenic enough that's what i read for for back in the late 80s early 90s which was yeah. a reason why people didn't want to push you is that is that true no no, no, no. this is this is this is the low down <laughs> when you're a young band coming up and you're coming out of la and you've got we had jimmy Iovine as our manager Okay, who's now the multi-billionaire music mogul, yeah. owner of Interscope Records, yeah. one of the most powerful men in the music business. And you've got John Kalodner, A&R guy, who worked with Aerosmith and ACDC and Foreigner and all these bands as that guy. And you've got Geffen Records, who at the time has Guns N' Roses. 
there's a lot of scrutiny from the record industry on anything that people like that. And then you get Bob Rock on the record to collaborate. And the expectation levels and the egos are phenomenally large. So when we signed with Geffen, it was all this stuff. They stuck us on their side label, which was supposed to meant to just break bands called DGC. And it was going to be um, Nelson, this little college indie band that they thought was very cute, might sell about 30,000 records called Nirvana and <laughs> Little Caesar. So, you know, we had um, this label manager at the time. And right, first of all, when we picked Bob Rock, we, we had to wait a year and a half for Bob. The record should have been out a year and a half earlier. Okay. Um, but John Kaladner got into a fight with him over Blue Murder. And we would have had to sit around on our ass for a year and a half, waiting until they kissed and made up, wouldn't let us go to it with another producer. Uh, when we spoke to Bob, we said, listen, we want to make a really gritty, 70s, honest sounding record. He thought that sounded really exciting and fun. He hasn't gotten to make a record like that, like the records he grew up with. So a year and a half passes, and Bob's had a couple more successful records. We traipse up to Vancouver. We start working with him. We're starting to make this really gritty, honest, just low, you know, not a lot of overdubs, not a lot of slick production, real honest record. And all of a sudden, Bob Rock's record for Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood goes to number one. So all of a sudden, Bob Rock has got a sound and a legacy to protect, and making a raw 70s-style sounding record is not going to fit into his catalog. So all of a sudden, the multi-track machines start rolling out, and the keyboard players start showing up, and the background singers start showing up, and we start doing 57 guitar overdubs, and we're now four <laughs> months into the record that was going to take six weeks. So we get this record finished after having battles about all the mix downs, because we were like, get rid of all that overdub shit, just put up two guitars, vocals, and a little background. Big fight with that. John Kaladner sides with Bob Rock. Jimmy Iovine is off starting Interscope Records. We kind of come to a fairly happy medium. We get the record done. Record's in the can. It's ready to go out. We put the first single out, which I didn't even want on the record. I didn't even want to cut Chain of Fools, which was a cover tune. Um, but John made us do it, and that was going to be the first single. And you know, um, all of these fights kind of going back and forth and we put it out and it, and it does really well. We get tons of radio airplay. We get, you know, MTV grabs it, puts it on heavy rotation first few weeks. Well, three weeks into that release, our label manager gets fired for masturbating on his secretary what? while high on several mind altering and body altering drugs. What? Yes. Yes, yes. He he was high on ecstasy, cocaine, walks out with a raging heart on, blows his load on his secretary's desk. She scoops it up into a little cup. She calls an attorney. He gets fired. She gets a $2 million settlement. There's nobody running the show. Now, what was leading up to this, a week or two before this went down, so like I said, we're three, four weeks into our debut, um, these are kind of inside stories, but... We were getting added. There was a syndicated radio station called Z-Rocks all around the country. And if you got on their playlist, you were going to do really well. Well, this same guy who thought, who, who was kind of loaded all the time, thought it would be great 
to cross us over the top 40, three weeks after the single comes out. Never been done with a rock band. Nirvana, actually, a month or so, late, you know, six months later, actually wound up doing it. So all of a sudden, when all these rock stations sees that we're trying to get played on top 40 stations, they're like, screw you. You know, you guys are trying to hit it out of the park and become multi-platinum in three weeks, and they started dropping us. So between the guy getting fired, between him going to all these radio stations and doing all this stuff, um, and right about the same time, Jimmy Iovine announces he's starting Interscope Records. And David Geffen goes to Jimmy and says that he wants to partner up with him on a bunch of stuff, and Jimmy tells him to go screw himself, and all of a sudden there's this fight between David Geffen and Jimmy Ivey, and we're in the middle of it. We're the band that he's going he's gonna to teach. So basically all of a sudden all this, and then the final piece of this was two weeks after that, David Geffen sells the label to a Japanese company. And all of our records that are sitting in the Warner Brothers warehouses need to get shipped over to the BMG warehouses now because the label's been sold. So while we're on the charts, while we're on MTV, while we're on radio, you can't find our record because it's sitting in a warehouse because it hasn't been shipped to BMG. So all of the planets align for everything that could go wrong for a new band at one time. Now, when all the crap hits the fan here and all of these record, you know, all these like Billboard and all these magazines start writing, what, what's happened? How did this just come to a screeching halt? So Geffen Records, rather than admit all of this stuff and make it public, say it's because we're ugly. <laughs> it's because we're not photogenic. What fucking rock band that looks like a bunch of bikers? Now, granted, <laughs> if Bob Rock didn't produce the record so slickly and produced it more like a Soundgarden record, we wouldn't, our photo wouldn't look so weird with the sound of the right, record. Right. But he produced it really slick. And we're sitting there going, dude, we don't look like these pretty ballads. We want to do sort of gritty ballads. We want to make these pretty sounding melodies along with, we, we knew what we wanted to do, but they didn't let us. So all of a sudden, everything we told them was going to happen, which the sound of the band wasn't going to match our photos started to happen and they realized that's a great excuse to say why his whole label now remember when he sold the label and the japanese came in they started looking at all the books and they they realized that geffen has 260 bands that are signed that they no one's ever heard of them. one of those bands was a friend of ours this band called the nymphs in galore she was waiting like a year, two years to get in the studio, they just had so many signed acts that they started, they brought in this guy, Robert Smith, as the head of marketing. And his job was to basically, like, call half the bands oh, off man. the label, cut back on spending, get the record label to look profitable, because David kind of got this whole, you know, he got like $1.2 billion or something for the label, and they realized that they're never going to see that money back until they start cutting costs. So they pulled all the tour support for us and all these other bands, and they just put this stuff out that the kids ain't digging our record. And it's like, what, what are you talking about? You know? Um, so that was a bunch of bullshit. The reality is, is it was all that business stuff. And if they were to listen to us, we would have had a much better shot. 
So at this point, you know, we kind of lick our wounds. We go off. The original guitar player leaves. Earl Slick comes in the band. We get a new. Now, in California, it's against the law for you to be a manager and a record distributor at the same time. It's a conflict of interest. Okay. So David leveraged that and made us fire Jimmy Iovine now that he was starting into Scope Records. So we start working with Herbie Herbert, who managed Santana and Journey and Bad English. And he's like, okay, listen, I'm going to go back to the label and I'm going to make all this right. Jimmy's gone now. We, we, we're not working with Bob Rock. Let's see if we can pick this up. And let's see if there's some light at the end of the tunnel. So we were contracted for two albums. And now remember, we, we signed the largest record deal for any new band ever signed in the history of the record business in 1988. And this giant hit contract and all of this, but they were only obligated to do two records. So we're getting ready to go in the second record. And basically they, you know, Herbie Herbert came back to us and said, listen, I had a meeting with them. That light at the end of the tunnel, it's a freight train. They have no plans. They want you to die and go away. And the final piece of it was we had a meeting up at Geffen, me and our day-to-day manager, and David Geffen and Eddie Rosenblatt, president. And basically, David Geffen just said, listen, you know, um, we messed up, and we don't really have the money or the desire to try to resurrect this. We're just going to let you go away. Um, we're going to put out your second record, but we're, we're not going to try to make this right. There's too much bad blood. There's too much mess up. It's going to cost too much money. So, you know, I, he goes, I collect artists like I collect artwork. And if you remember, Neil Young didn't do a record for 10 years. And Don Henley didn't do a record for almost 10 years. And that's because we had... Differences of opinion. And guess who won those differences of opinion? So what we're going to do is we're going to put out your second record and it's just going to come and go. And then we're going to drop you guys. But I'm going to hold on to Ron, the singer, in what's called the key man clause, which every one of these record contracts have. And if Ron, you, you, you could, because I can't have you go to another label as Little Caesar and be successful. And I know there's like five labels that would sign you tomorrow. Start fresh. Wow. You know? So I, we kind of went off just going, we're, we're fucked. We're, this is, this is over. <laughs> so that's what we did. We came and we went, we, we actually went on the second record. We went over to Europe and uh, at this point, the band was really depressed and, you know, it's like, you know, all of these behind the scenes nightmare things. And right. first time playing in Europe and we show up in, in UK and there's literally lines eight blocks down to get into this club show. And same thing in Germany. And we're like, we could have a career here in Europe. And at the time, Thunder, if you remember that band Thunder was headlining the Monsters of Rock tour. They were doing really well right at that time. And um, the singer and the guitar player came down to see us at the show in London. And we get a phone call at the hotel going, listen, man, we'd love to put you on the tour. We can put you on the tour. And other bands are getting, you know, other bands are paying like 30,000 bucks to get on the tour. We'll, we'll waive that. We'll even pay you like 500 bucks a night. Um, 
can you guys do it? We did the numbers and it's like, we need some tour support. So we called up the label and said, we could play to like 70,000 people a night. And they're like, nah, we don't see the, we don't see the benefit of that, of the 10,000 a week. So we call them back and we go, dude, you're not going to believe this, but they not, they're not going to give us 10 grand. So they said, okay, well, what if we paid you a thousand bucks a night? And it's like, okay, well, that means so we only need like a 5,000 bucks a week. And they said, no, they turned us down. So that's when we knew, man, this is over. Wow. <laughs> that is, is, this is over. So, so that's, that is, that's the encapsulated story of everything that could go wrong for a band did go wrong. For. So it had nothing to do with the fact that we look like bikers and we did pretty songs. Well, so. that's the whole thing is that what you just, that story was so much more interesting and entertaining after the fact, of course, not entertaining in the moment, but it's so much more interesting. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's really funny. It actually, <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, there's some good juicy details. But just to put it all on you guys being ugly, which is what Every every story I read about Little Caesar back in the day, that's what every article says. Well, well, yeah, because that's what Geffen's publicity department, rather than try to sell records, decided to spin it so that Geffen okay. didn't look bad. Because what David Geffen says is, listen, I've got 120 acts on the label. And if people think that the record label is in such disarray with their label manager getting fired and the record getting label getting sold and cutting back on budgets. No one's going to sign with us. Right. So we got to come up with an excuse why we screwed it up so bad with you. And we're going to blame you for it. And here's the interesting thing. So we, we were like, okay, we kind of got wind that this is what they're trying to say. So we shaved off our goatees and we put on like frilly polka dotted shirts and we went and did a couple of photo sessions <laughs> to look like slaughter or something like that. And we sent them off to the label. And we're like, okay, you, you want pretty fuckers? Here you go. We got rid of the leather and like worn out denim and there's no photos of us on our motorcycles. We're sitting on this velvet couch with like total hair metal clothing and clean shaven and look really cute because we don't look as scummy we look like we bathe you know it was all nice and i guess the photos were sitting around jimmy ivy's office and at the time he was working with john bon jovi on um a christmas album and john came in and he looked at these photos and he's like who's these guys and jimmy goes oh that's a little caesar he goes what he goes do you have ron's phone number so he calls me from jimmy's office he's like dude don't let anyone see these pictures. Do not. Do not do this. He goes, what I thought was cool about you guys were you looked authentic. And, the, and you don't do this. Do not let them puss you out. Do not go for this. That's what they're telling you is bullshit. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm on the phone with John Bon Jovi. And he's a fan. And he was giving me sage advice. He was a super nice guy. But he's like, dude. Do not release these photographs. So, so where are those it. photos just, now? I don't know. They're probably in a folder somewhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it looked pretty funny, and and it was it was interesting because in this whole process with the with the label manager wound up getting fired, trying to cross us over to top forty. They decided after the chain of fools thing went up and down really fast because there was nothing, no records in the store, all that stuff that I described. They decided to come back with a ballad. 
So they picked this song in your arms, you know, which is this great sort of old R and B type ballad. And they're like, listen, um, they, they sent it out to all the top 40 radio stations and they loved it. And then they started, then they saw pictures in the band. And this is what gave them the idea. They saw this biker band doing this ballad. And this is again, before Nirvana, this is before all of these bands started to get played on top 40 stations. And they're like, we can't, we, we can't promote a band that looks like the Hells Angels on Coast 104, the soft rock revolution, you know? So they put out a promo single without our picture on it. And it worked for a couple of weeks and then they all dropped the track. And that's when they came up with the whole idea of just saying, these guys are too scary looking to be in a rock band. And we're like, how can you, how can you be too scary looking? Have you seen Motorhead? And they're like, yeah, but your music's too pretty for your image. And I'm like, and whose fault is that? We're the ones that told you from day one, you've got to make us sound like we look. And that's what you signed. We didn't sound like this when you came to see the band. We sounded like a fucking rock band. Right. And now you guys try to make us sound like, you know, some <laughs> overproduced, you know, 80s band. And we told you. That's why you signed us, because we're an R&B-based, blues-based band. And we told them, this is going to change. All this music is going to go away real soon. You guys are overhyping it. It's the same formula of these guys with uh, the puffy hair in the polka dot shirts, and they do the rock track, the She's My Cherry Pie, and then they follow it up with the you know, the, the romantic ballad and, and it's just a formula now and people are getting sick of it. They're going to want an alternative. And sure enough, what happens? Everything they label alternative. And it's like, see, we were right. You know, because we wanted our record to sound like Soundgarden's first record. Right. That's the vision we had. And that was two years before it even happened. So, yeah, it's a it's the big what if, right? It's the eternal what oh, if. Yeah, listen, dude, if, if if we would have been as successful with all of those people that were involved, I'd be dead or a raging asshole. So I'm okay with it. I really am. I still get to make music, but yeah, right I couldn't handle it. You know, I, I just couldn't have. And you know, it, it forced me to learn how to hunt on my own. <laughs> I know a lot of dudes that did pretty well back then who, because of this pandemic, and they're, they're starving right now. So, you know, I'm at that age in my life where I'm okay with it. Yeah. I had just enough, just enough success to keep getting to do it and not be a douchebag or, uh, <laughs> you know, a guy complaining that my fifth stripper wife has left me and is suing me for my house in Calabasas or Malibu. I'm okay with that. Let's, uh, so this is all great. And again, there's going to be so much to talk about, but let's leave this, excuse me. Let's leave this episode with this last thing. You mentioned chain of fools a couple of times. Um, again, cover, do you, do you feel like that is a bit of an albatross on the band at this point? Do you well, still enjoy think, playing? I don't think it was a great lead off. The, the whole, okay. all John Collada said about that was, well, look how great Van Halen did, but you really got me. And I'm like, what does one thing have to do with the other? <laughs> I can name 20 bands that did, you know, other, you know, originals, but he just thought it was really great. And 
you know, once you put the background vocals and all that other stuff and they softened the edges of the way we did it, yeah. it became this kind of, you know, over-processed kind of thing. They didn't really know what they were going to do for a video. And, you know, so it, I don't think it was – and even then, it did really well. It went, like, to number 18 or something on the, on the charts, you know, on the rock charts, singles. Um, but, again, that's when everything crashed and burned, right. so – who, who knows uh, if they were to come out with another track or two, the way a lot of other bands, it would have started to build people going, wow, that's these guys too, you know, right. and then came with a ballad. But hindsight is, is 2020, always, man. Always so 2020. you never know. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Uh, we thank you for your support. Please continue to yes, like and subscribe. You. Yep. Thank you, Ron, for, for being on the show. I, we'll do plenty I'm more kidding. of these. And uh, it's it's been great. Even just, I mean, just one one long story was just amazing. It was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. So much appreciated. Yeah, yeah nothing like describing a good car crash. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.